Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Danielle Collins, who is on a mission to help patients and physicians alike adopt augmented and virtual reality technology that allows patient to become immersed in their diagnosis and care. Join us as she walks us through her own unexpected journey that led her to become the CEO of Empower360, where she's collaborating with VR companies and the hospital C-suite to forward this mission. So when you're on stage doing the VR, what is... You're talking about your experiences, the patient and the neurosurgeon's The neurosurgeon will give the clinical piece and aspect, and then he'll bring up my case, and he'll actually fly through it, and then I'll come up and we'll describe my experience using the technology from the patient's perspective. But then also, as we engage together on stage, the audience is able to see a snippet of what it's actually like to engage with your clinician in the hospital room. So it's special. Oh. It's a reenactment of sort of those initial conversations that you have from the perspective of a clinician standing over you while you're laying in a hospital bed. So walk us through kind of your piece of the puzzle in healthcare, this big complicated world, and what you're doing, how you got there, and and why it matters so much to you. So when I was in grad school, getting my master's in social work, I remember I had a professor that told me that the greatest skill set you could ever acquire is to have the ability to have genuine empathy with your patients. And so sitting here today, I reflect back on this truth and realize that my own journey through brain surgery is the very thing that now allows me to amplify the concerns and the vulnerabilities from a patient's perspective. I've realized that my voice and the voice of other patients should always have a role in the development and adoption of new technologies because in fact, it's our stories that foster empathy 
And this empathy is a necessary component of developing technologies that actually serve and can enhance the lives of patients. So my personal passion lies in medical and virtual reality technologies because that was my firsthand experience. When I was at George Washington University Hospital, I was in the ICU for a brain bleed for over 10 days. And on the day before my surgery, my neurosurgeon, Dr. Walter Jean, walked in with an Oculus VR headset in tow. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. And he's not on his Xbox. This is not VR or augmented <laughs> reality. Like, I think what lay people or right. consumers see on YouTube, on TV, and in the gaming industry, media. yes. Your doctor walked to your bedside with a headset on his forehead. Exactly. And funny enough, you should ask that. He also had an Xbox remote in his other hand because that was how it was controlled. You're kidding. No, I'm not. <laughs> He slipped the headset on What me. the heck are you thinking when this <laughs> man comes in the room, other than you want to be helped, and this is supposed to be the guy to do it? What are you thinking? That they are out of options and that this is the next best thing they can come <laughs> oh up with. God. So you're ner- this great neurosurgeon is at your bedside with an Xbox remote and a VR headset. Please continue. So I slip on the goggles, and I'm immediately transported inside my brain to my pathology that they had been trying to explain all along, and it was as clear as day. So everything that up until that point had been so abstract and that I had been trying to construct in my mind, what my brain bleed actually looked like, what the surgical plan was going to entail, I was able to walk through the pathology and then walk through the surgical plan with them in real time using my own two eyes and getting the vision or the, the sight of my, the same sight as my surgeon. If we go back to what you were thinking of before you had this, the VR headset on, what were you envisioning prior to having this really augmented virtual experience mm-hmm. of really being able to share in a, in a transitive way what the neurosurgeon knew, what they were going to do, what they knew their plan was? Mm-hmm. What were you thinking before then? What was, what was the rudimentary vision before that technology was presented to you? Well, I can say when I was in the ambulance and I first found out that I had a brain bleed, I remember asking the EMT, they're not going to have to cut me open, are they? So it went from that to then thinking, worst case scenario, you know, taking off half of my head to eradicate the bleed. So I really didn't know what to anticipate, nor did I even have any knowledge of my condition when they diagnosed me with an AVM. I did not even know what that was. For our listeners that are listening, tell them what the acronym means. Yes, so it's taken me some time too. It's an artrovenous malformation, and the best way to think of it as a tangle of blood vessels. It's a congenital condition, meaning that I had lived my entire life up until this point with it in my head. I like to think of it, it was a ticking time bomb, really, that finally erupted when I was 27. So you put on the headset, you're thinking, you know, I don't know what the heck this looks like, what it is. Maybe they have to like remove half of my brain. What, what does that look like? Or that there's just some, some bleeding going on. Mm-hmm. What, what happens? How, how are you transformed when you see this now? So I think the best way to summarize it is that it eliminates all the fears of the unknown because everything that your mind constructs in and of itself about what's going to happen or what you're anticipating or any of your fears, they're eliminated in that moment because you can visually see in a 360-degree reconstruction what the problem is and how they're going to take care of it. So as he was walking me through the surgical plan down to, I'm going to cut here, I'm going to drill the bone out here, we're going to take this vein first and make sure that these three remain so that it doesn't further rupture, I was able to walk through the process with him. And it was as simple as walking through you know, a television show or a cartoon. Um, so you're like sucked into your own little like 
History Channeler Nat Geo explanation of what's going on in a way you can now relate to. I was actually an avatar in my brain, and I even got to get the Superman view where I was inside my brain looking back out at the hole that they had come in through. Oh my gosh. Did they give you an opportunity to kind of like fly around all the way at? In your brain, in whatever area you wanted to go? Yes, I did. I looked at the other side, and I remember joking with my surgeon because he misspoke and called it a tumor, and I said, absolutely no tumors in here. I can see that for myself. (laughs) So it was that, too, just having laughter and reassurance and sort of getting to play doctor for a moment. Sure. And it, it bridged the gap between the knowledge base that my clinician had and the knowledge that I had as a patient. And it allowed us to communicate with each other in a way that was, to steal your word from earlier, rudimentary in nature. So, how, so wait, it must have like leveled up your your communication because especially if you're able to connect in an area that you were maybe just not seeing the same thing, like how did mm-hmm. that level up your conversation? It absolutely leveled up our conversation and in thinking of that on a larger scale, for me, you know, I mentioned that I was 27 when this happened. I'm witnessing pediatric patients since then who have been using this technology, and a six-year-old is then able to talk to a doctor in the same way that a 40-year-old is because they can see the tumor or the aneurysm or the bleed highlighted in whatever color um, the program lead has made it, and they can say, okay, I see this big green ball. This is bad. This needs to come out. One of the neurosurgeons I work with, he jokes about his six-year-old daughter saying, Dada, I see that this is bad. This needs to come out. He's like, yes, even she gets it. So you're right. It does. It does. It levels the playing field and it completely creates a condition and an environment where you're able to speak about things in the same language. What were you doing the day you had the brain bleed? What was going on in your life as a 27-year-old young woman before this all happened? So I was recently married and my husband and I had just moved back to Washington, D.C. We did a little stint in Atlanta for 18 months where I'm originally from and decided to come back to D.C. where he's from. I was at Pilates class, believe it or not, the morning that it ruptured. I had woken up on a Monday morning, went to an 8.30 Pilates class routine. I typically work out every morning, and I felt the sharpest headache of my life. It felt like an ice pick driving through the right side of my skull. I left the class, slept on this excruciating headache for two days. I mean, can you believe that? Two days. Went to the grocery store. Tried to even get onto my Peloton downstairs in my basement to get blood flow back into there my brain. There is a great many reasons I don't do Pilates or own a <laughs> That would not have been on my list, but continue. My mom always <laughs> says, I told you exercise is bad for you. <laughs> no, I believe in exercising. Probably just not at the same level. So, so your life is just kind of ho-hum, churning along, doing typical things a young woman would be doing. Mm-hmm. Radically changed. Radically changed. Yes. In one moment um, on that day, the entire trajectory of my life was radically changed. And it's from this experience, I will say, not to fast forward too much and skip over the journey, but the thing that sticks out the most is that our trials become our testimonies. And this could not be more the case. Um, It was, and I've said it before, nothing short of a miracle that this happened. And reflecting back that I was born with this condition, that I was a little girl, that my entire life, like, this was my destiny, this was my plan, and that's how I look at it. So I've called it my blessing in disguise before, and I think that that is the truest way to think about the whole scenario. So you have the procedure done. Does everything go according to plan, the way the doctor described it, the way you're walked through it, on the VR headset 
to be able to communicate with him, understand what's about to happen, visualize it as an avatar mm -hmm. within your head, what happens next? So everything went better than expected. You know, since my brain had blood, there was blood on the brain, and whenever that happens, you're at risk of permanent cognitive deficits or um, physiological deficits as well, none of which I had. I walked out of the hospital five days after surgery on my own two feet. Oh. And with a short stint of being on anti-epileptic medication just to ensure um, that I didn't have a seizure because of the nature of where it was located in my brain, I was back to driving in three months. I was back to running within four. Um, I was back to working within six. I mean, it went better than could have been expected. I will say that since my surgery, I've seen research around the effects of calming your body prior to surgery. And so the fact that I didn't have nearly as much blood loss because I went into surgery less anxious and I felt at peace, like I had been a part of my medical plan, and then I got to have informed shared decision-making throughout the process, I think all of that contributed to my positive outcome. Well, I think even if... I can imagine that if a patient has any anxiety or stress left, that that leveling up or leveling the playing field of information, that transitive effect of his knowledge now becomes your knowledge, the surgeon to the patient, mm -hmm. that it also allows you to ask a more educated question. Okay, well, what happens if you get in there and you realize we can't clip this one first or we can't right. do step A first? What happens then? Mm -hmm. That you're just able to absolve yourself of some of that stress and anxiety because mm -hmm. you are so ingrained in what's about to happen. Absolutely. I remember asking, so what happens if I have to have a blood transfusion? What would that look like? What would be you know, the plan of care on the back end? What if I do have a seizure? All the things that I wouldn't have known to ask, I now knew to ask. So you're absolutely right. It does, it does inform the line of questioning that you're able to have, as well as the information that you go into surgery knowing. If you're, something that's coming up for me is if your brain is bleeding and you're experiencing something in that moment, are you losing cognitive you know, ability? at that time, like to be able to be thoughtful and ask these, you know, really important questions, that seems, it seems almost going against itself. Like, I, I don't know why. <laughs> the nursing team and my clinicians were absolutely stunned that I was still as awake and alert as I was. Most patients that present with the same condition I had are either comatose or they're, it's necessary to put them in a medically induced coma or they've already passed. And so for me, I was on Q1 NeuroChecks, um, and for those of you listening, that just basically means that every hour on the hour, I had a nurse or a doctor coming into my room to ask my name, my birth date, where I was, just shrug my shoulders, lift up what we call the pizza box, which is basically just lifting up both arms to remain stable to show that you haven't had a stroke, for 10 days, every hour on the hour. So that was prisoner of war camp stuff, by the way. I think that was worse than the surgery. Yeah. So my whole medical team was completely surprised that I was functioning as well as I was. Um, not always the case. Yeah, I can imagine. So walk us through what happens next. You're back to work. Life kind of has some semblance of what it was before. You're realizing how fortunate you were. You got mm -hmm. to have these cool tools in your life. What happened after that? So it's an amazing story, really, because following my surgery, I personally had four close friends who experienced similar brain bleeds or tumors after my surgery and called in desperation asking where and how they could get surgical theaters technology 
before What's their the surgery. What's the likelihood of that happening? Slim to none. <laughs> <laughs> um, true story, though. And it quickly became apparent, like I said before, that my own surgery was not just for me. It was a calling that had been placed upon my life to pay it forward for future patients. And so thus, Empower 360 Foundation was born. And Empower 360 is a community of patient advocates, strategic partners, and visionary philanthropists who are dedicated to making these VR and AR 360 medical technologies available to everyone. So hospitals, one of the barriers to entry for these innovations are financial. And then also, from a clinician standpoint, thinking that it would replace their own skill set. So there's an awareness that we're trying to create with our foundation that it's not replacing a skill set, but in fact, it's serving as another tool in the toolkit to enhance the patient experience and enhance the clinician's skill set. And simultaneously, we're raising funds so that we can provide grants to hospitals and institutions so they can financially afford to bring these technologies in. A lot of them operate on the basis currently that it's a return on investment model, meaning the hospital adopts the technology and they assume that the investment that they make up front is going to pay off in the end because there's going to be lower out-migration numbers, greater patient retention rates, and the patients overall are going to give higher HCAP scores or higher scores for the hospital, which is in turn how they get paid. So all that to be said, this movement that we're trying to create has to stem in a grassroots sort of way from the patient voices. Because truly, the end users of all of these technologies, these virtual reality and augmented reality technologies, are the patients. And we're trying to enhance their outcomes, trying to enhance their lives. So to go to a hospital and to demand that you're diagnosed and that you're treated with these technologies is where it needs to start. So overall, I sum it up to say we're trying to change the standard of care. Is there any plan? So... We've heard a lot, we participate in a lot of Twitter chats and different forums that doctors in general and those that are in training don't have access or time sometimes to have, you know, get their hands on the latest and greatest things to see not only how they work and how they operate without some hard sell at a conference or some CME event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there any thought to really put this in academia or in the training or curriculum to put it in the hands of the people that are ultimately going to go out and hopefully have influence in the clinical space. Because giving it to the patients, I would imagine that they are astonished, astounded in the most beautiful and impactful way to think, I want this, Mm -hmm. right? Just like everyone wants the latest phone. But you're right, the C-suite at the hospital doesn't always see it that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mostly, let's just be honest, they don't see it that way. Most (laughs) of them don't. They want to. It's not that they don't want the tool, but their dollars have to go in a certain direction. And Mm -hmm. when you can't have that cost benefit to show them immediate funds in their pocket or to the bottom line, it becomes a very hard sell in this day and age. Mm -hmm. So going back to your point about training the next generation of surgeons and clinicians was how I kind of interpreted your question. I think that that is imperative. And part of our mission, we're working with a particular doctor actually out of GW, um, George Washington University Hospital in D.C., who has made it his life mission to lead the Global Brain Initiative and to transport his knowledge and his use of virtual reality in his own practice in Washington, D.C., to less fortunate or less progressive countries around the world. So he recently just went on a mission to Panama. He'll be going to Vietnam soon, another lecture in China. And is 
basically trying to raise awareness for the use of these technologies and have residents demand it. I would love to see one day a fly-through fellowship that would be offered for virtual and augmented reality technologies within a teaching hospital, that it could be sort of an adjunct to their already set curriculum, a specialization of sorts. Yeah, I think that that would be brilliant, and putting it in the hands of the people that will be out there tomorrow, I think, is a great way. But I'd also imagine that when people see this or experience it, after kind of that threatening, you know, I think kind of visceral response that sometimes physicians can have, that like you said, it's another tool, it's a way to inform clinically, and in this case, not just themselves, but the patient, right? Right. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. My question is, I keep thinking, sorry, we can transition to mine. I'm just trying to think of like the software that is being used in the AR or the VR. Is it essentially like, okay, here's, here's the game, so to speak, for the brain. Mm-hmm. Here's the game, so to speak, for the lungs or, you know, other parts of the body, like, how, do, how does it actually work in that sense? So we've been speaking so far about one particular technology called surgical theater. And surgical theater was actually created from, its CEO was in the Israeli Air Force. And he took the flight simulator models from the Israeli Air Force and built a model of the brain using CT or MRI scans, layering them to create a three-dimensional virtual immersive environment that allows the clinicians to see the full vascular system and all the structures in a whole new way. So other applications of virtual or augmented realities include mental health. For example, PTSD and the DOD, the military is using that a lot for returning war veterans to put them back in the environment that's causing so much strife, but from from their therapist's couch in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Other applications include meditation or calming effects, so guided meditation for children that are receiving treatment, whether it be cancer or prior to surgery, allowing them to walk through an MRI or a CT room before they actually have to have one administered, eases the anxiety. And then we're also seeing applications for VR and AR technology combating the opioid crisis, which is my particular other area of interest in the fact that they've proven that these technologies can activate the pain receptors in your brain 
to lower your pain, in which case less opioids are having to be prescribed by doctors and ultimately decrease the risk of readmissions to the hospital for drug-related incidents. I would imagine that dovetailing that with like MAT, the medication-assisted treatment, could really be invaluable or maybe multiplicatively or possibly exponentially depending yes. on the patient as they would progress through an MATM. If Absolutely. they were addicted to opioids or had abuse issues, could see effects faster mm-hmm. towards recovery or dependent, less having less dependence. Virtual reality has also been proven um, in studies to close or shorten the feedback loop in your brain. So if you think of eating disorder treatment yeah. or you think of addiction treatment like we were speaking about, the feedback loop in your brain, it shortens. And so you're able to see, think of the Pavlovian dogs, mm-hmm. you're able to elicit that response in a much quicker and much more timely manner than long drawn out sessions of therapy where you have a therapist sitting in front that says, visualize this. Well, what if you could actually visualize it? So I think what I was going to say before is something you touched on that you have some doctors that are very passionate about it. They're out there using it, that it's a great tool. Sometimes people don't see the ROI or selling the ROI, if you will, is very difficult. I would imagine, though, that when you put it in the hands of the people that are going to use it, there's no shortage of maybe almost an immediacy to the evangelism they may feel for it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you get a ooh, ah, or super wow effect going on when you put this in the hands of clinicians and patients? And can you give us some examples where you've maybe witnessed it? I'll be very blunt and say you either get it or you don't. (laughs) Okay. And it's very... Tell us about somebody that got it and somebody that didn't. It's very apparent within moments of putting on the headset if they are going to fall in, which bucket they're going to fall in. So someone who gets it immediately, I'll use the example of our Empower 360 endowed chair at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach. His name is Dr. Rob Lewis. He immediately got it. For his patients, he was actually one of the first doctors that saw that it had the component of patient engagement attached to the VR headset. He was able to engage with his patients in a way that he hadn't prior, and he backed it up with clinical data showing that he was actually retaining more of his patients after using the virtual and augmented reality technologies than prior. So using that raw clinical data makes a good case to the C-suite administration, but then for his own personal practice, he has the confidence that he's now communicating and doing no harm or doing less harm than he was prior. That's really cool. And what about the people that don't get it? I'm imagining you're not going to name drop somebody that didn't get it. But but tell us, maybe, what, what are the objections? What are the hurdles you're hearing from the people that maybe don't get it or don't realize what it effects it can, positive effects and impact it can have? So I think it's a multi-pronged thing. And first being any type of financial implication where there's the barrier to entry because of finances and they don't want to push for hospital administration to reallocate those dollars or face resistance from upper level administration. Secondly, I think it has to do with thinking that your clinical skill set is all that you need to treat a patient. And while neurosurgeons arguably are some of the most brilliant minds of our generation, or any generation for that matter, there are still ways that we are human and there's ways to augment that and enhance the level of care that we provide. So I've seen in the past doctors not even willing to take a meeting, not even willing to explore the potential of these technologies. And to me, from a patient's perspective, that's really sad. I would want them at least to do the courtesy of exploring because if it was them sitting in my position, I would hope that they would want that done for them as well. You're tying back to something you said when you first came in and sat down, and that is the unification 
of just about anyone you will speak to because at some point or another, you know, regardless of acuity, which could be really extreme or incredibly low, everyone's been a patient. Mm-hmm. Does that ever come into play when you're talking to people about the value of this? Because sometimes when we speak to people about value-based care, doing the right thing at the t- right time, care coordination, who would you send your mom to, your loved ones, mm-hmm. right? It's, you know, do you ever do you ever run up against that or use that in some way? I think it goes back to what I first said about the genuine empathy piece. And I think my professor um, in social work school was correct because if you can elicit that empathy piece from the doctor, those are normally the ones that get it because they understand that if they were in this position, it's what they would want as a tool. So you just touched on something. You said social work school. So you were working as a social worker when this happened. Is that correct? Yes. And what is your title today? I'm the chief experience officer of Empower 360 and not a given title, but avid patient advocate. I would imagine so. So what does your regular day look like now that you're doing this at the head of Empower 360? So I live in Washington, D.C., but the foundation is based in Los Angeles. So my day-to-day is working from home. It does involve quite a bit of travel. It's normally taking meetings either by Skype or over the phone. At this point in time, we've been trying to get a really good lay of the landscape of who is innovating within the space and who's doing it well, which companies have the longevity and are really inclined to care first and foremost about the patient and not the dollar sign, because those are the ones that we want to fund and those are the ones that we believe will be around long-term. That's really cool. But regarding your health, after the surgery, are you back on track? Is everything okay? Do you have to go back and have any more or anything? I recently went back for my two-year follow-up scan in June, which was all clear, thank God. And I am back to full force. I am running again. I ran five miles yesterday. I'm traveling all over the world speaking. And I really am truly grateful. Um, It was extraordinary. Even following my surgery, they only shaved a small part of my hair. And I have to credit God for that because a month later, I got my head shot when I was working um, in real estate for a little bit, actually, following my surgery. What? Oh, headshot. I'm sorry, 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 sorry. No, no, I thought you meant like got shot in the head. Oh, no, we're not going back in for another surgery. (laughs) And for women, like, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to have a picture taken, it's important that all things are in their place. (laughs) Exactly. For most humans. Understood. So, had my head shot, but then (laughs) as time progressed, you know, we go down the line and I'm being asked to speak at these conferences and being asked you know, to be GW's commercial for their next marketing campaign. And I had that headshot ready and to go. I can't imagine what it would have been like had they had to shave half of my hair off, you know? So to the general public, I think my story is really impactful and powerful because to the average person, I look completely normal and you would never know my story just from looking at me. That leads me to another point Um, for me personally, on a level that it has changed me to never judge anyone just from seeing them because you don't know that the, the story that they hold or what their lives have been like or what experiences have shaped them. So that's been an amazing learning experience for me. It's amazing how experience can so be such a catalyst to shifting perspective. Hmm. True. So thinking, speaking of changing things, you want to ask <laughs> our next question? Sure. We transition into our second question. We ask every single one of our guests, 
And basically just thinking about the whole world of healthcare and health IT. If you could snap your fingers, you know, put on a magical hat and have all time, resources, and money available <laughs> to you, <laughs> what problem would you solve in either healthcare or health IT and why? Well, my greatest objective would be that there would be no more sickness or even a need for healthcare. <laughs> but on this side of heaven, that's not the case. So I would say that it would be ensuring that the patient is foremost a person and ensuring that they're not just a bed number, that they're not just another case, but they're an actual human being and that their medical care stems from that inherent fact first and foremost. I think that there's a way that technology can aim to better serve patients and clinicians, and it does hold the potential to bridge the divide between the doctor and the patient and how they communicate with each other. It's really empowering to place a patient in a more active role of their plan of care and seek alternative methodologies for treating illness. For example, and I'm shooting for the moon here, guided meditations through VR could be the first step to tackling pain management or ultimately the opioid crisis. Or think about what I said earlier, virtually transporting an oncology patient to a beach during chemo instead of allowing them to stare at a blank wall, it humanizes otherwise excruciatingly stressful experience and allows them to find relief in the moment. Yeah, I'm thinking about the dentist office and how many people just get really nervous there. I wonder if in the future you'll get to see, you know, be transported to the beach while you're having... There are applications for that. And recently I had a cleaning and my dentist was asking me the same thing. You know, uh, one of our uh, youngest children, one of their our family, close family friends, is going through chemo right now, and she's just done her third. And of course, they so they pack up all the books, they pack up all the things to go. And I'm looking at the pictures of, of this girlfriend's child, and she is just bored out of her mind. She's frustrated. She's not feeling well still, maybe from the time before, and all these things that have to go on. And I just think about like. Even the iPad, it's not enough. Like, what a transformative effect it might have for her to have access to something like that. And she's literally sitting in a room, even though she's getting pediatric care from nurse. On the opposite wall, there's a bunch of old folks, if you will, Mm -hmm. um, or elderly population getting their chemo. And it's just, it's not a really friendly environment necessarily for a child and something they want to do. So when you think about some of the most unique uses, I'd imagine the sky could really be the limit. Joy pointed out one. Is there something maybe, you know, medical or non-medical? Or, or I'm sure you think of different uses for this all the time or mm-hmm. things spark different ideas for you. What have been some of the newest uses and things are talking about other than the guided meditation? Is there something that gets you really excited or even something recreational with it that might have a good effect or an impact? So I can say as of late, the thing I've been the most excited about was Disney's partnership with the Starlight Foundation. They have committed to bringing virtual reality headsets to over 800 of their pediatric hospitals around the country. How cool is that? So Disney is coming to the sick children. (laughs) Yes, to transport them into Walt Disney immersive environments and outside of their hospital rooms. I am really ticked. I would have really wanted this. I am not a happy mom. (laughs) First of all, time out. This could be cheaper. Sick child, no sick child, than actually going to Disney, Danielle. (laughs) So let's just say that first and foremost. Right. But then when you have the application of a child that may not be able to go or has a need to be transported somewhere, Mm -hmm. how cool is that? Well, so I had an opportunity to actually do virtual reality in in 
entertainment type of a way where you're literally like several of us went to a venue and each had our own room and mm-hmm. we ended up playing dodgeball you know <laughs> we were playing dodgeball and, and but with the headset we could all talk with each other and so we mm. were communicating hey meet me over here in this room and I wonder that brings up an amazing point um, another application of it is a sick child what do they miss the most they miss their family they miss their friends they miss being in their own environment if you could reconstruct those environments in a virtual world where your grandmother's sitting on the couch next to you and mm-hmm. your mom and dad are just a turn of your head to your right away, you would transport the child back to their place of comfort. It's a home away from home in a sense. And I imagine it's not that far off or crazy to be able to connect people in different places or even different children in different hospitals and being able to allow them to We talk do it with from our other. phone right Absolutely. now. We, we Skype people or we use you know, virtual messaging. Do you want to speak to what's going on? Are you okay? Don't be. I'm a crier too. (laughs) It's amazing. Our son, um, three years ago yesterday, uh, overnight became a, uh, of independent quadriplegic for a disease that had no known etiology, no treatment. And we were in three hospitals. We left that morning, July 31st, 2016, and he didn't come home until a couple days before his birthday. And it's tender because he passed last September. But that, so sorry. that period of time that we were at Hopkins, for months, my husband and I were like ships passing in the night and he has two older sisters. I have to tell you that the anxiety and stress of a shift for a young boy that really is a toddler's, most toddlers are defined by their physical abilities, especially a boy versus a girl, and I say that as a mom of both, that I think to myself about not just the ability to have transported him back to his house, which we never went back to because we had to move to accommodate all of his needs um, because he was tech dependent, and to have done that and I think about every therapy we went to because I saw other patients in this very small community of this rare disease. And I just thought to myself in my heart of hearts as a parent, like what if he had the will of a 12 year old, hmm. right? Because some of these older kids were making some bigger strides with these intense physiotherapies right. and whatever. Or what if he could have just felt comforted in doing a hard task Instead of me holding the phone to do Legos and basically hollering slash cheerleading for him to try and move his head because he was completely flaccid, mm-hmm. like, what if he could have done that or been supported or watch Superman turning his head at the same time, the motivation? And so as you're sitting here and you brought up Disney, and I think about the ability for people to talk to each other, right? What if kids across the country could talk or be like, oh, did you see Goofy walk by or whatever, right? Like, the utilization... It really strikes home for me in a very, both a very clinical way, in the example you're giving, because I'm able to understand what you're saying Mm -hmm. because of my professional background. But then on that patient and consumer side, what that would have done for him and his care, Danielle, in any second of any day, it would have been transformative. Can you imagine a world, and you're going to make me cry, but can you imagine a world where a patient scared out of their mind, laying in a hospital bed, could talk to a patient going through the same thing half a world away? 
Because that is what I'm trying to create, that sense of patient community. You know, we talk about patient advocacy, and that's such a huge buzzword, right? What truer advocacy do we have than a patient that's facing the exact same thing? Who knows empathy more than someone who has walked in your very same shoes? And so to use and leverage technology in a way where we can connect those same voices so that they can provide each other hope, that has to be the end-all goal. Yeah. I am just so enthralled with your your story, the use of it, the way it's kind of transformed your life. Like, and, and it's just so cool. It's just cool. So well, I don't you. know that there's another word. So um, I'm sorry to get emotional, but you, you touched on it. And I was thinking one of our biggest regrets is that we never did the Make-A-Wish. Mm-hmm. We took for, he, he died very unexpectedly, very unexpectedly on a very normal day. And um, we never did that. So when you brought up the Disney thing, Mm-hmm. He had either wanted to go to Disney, he or he said, Mommy, should I get on a rocket ship or should I get on a fishing boat? And he was totally mm-hmm. flaccid in a wheelchair with a ventilator. We need an outlet every so often after the batteries die. And I thought, how cool would it would have been to have that or to be able to go there? And I said, Bud, you know, Mommy and Daddy, we could do Disney. That's a choice. <laughs> we could definitely, you know, Mommy and Daddy can pick you up. We can get the wheelchair and your sister's on a big pontoon boat. We can go fishing. We can get on a boat. We could get on a big boat in the ocean. Um, and I said, but by the, I said, getting you in a rocket ship and sending you backwards might be hard and it might not feel good. And he goes, you know what, Mommy, you are probably right. <laughs> but I think about, like, and I know that's a recreational use, but that or the Disney thing for children and just truly the impact it would have had for him the anxiety when we went home and his bed rail didn't come up mm-hmm. what if he could have just like been able to be at peace or during some of his therapies that he didn't like for respiration and his pulmonary system like there is just i'm thinking about even kids and their glucose that are diabetic like absolutely like the sky's the limit for what you're doing miss collins like thank you and i feel the same way and to touch on that point you know about your son if we all had the faith and the viewpoint of a child. So we traditionally think of these things as gaming technologies that children play, right? But the truest resilience, the truest nature of seeing the world as this limitless place, this place of good, that's the vantage point of a child. And I think as we grow, we're jaded by what we go through and the experiences that we have. But your son's testament is true to that. In his testament of just wanting to get on a rocket ship or wanting to spend the day out of his pain, it hits on that very factor. So if we can get back to that just childlike nature and leverage these technologies to see the world from a child's vantage point, I think we'd all be better off. Yeah, I, oh, like my mind is just real. I think about the clinical examples and the 10 doctors we had and his PCP and just the procedures he went through, how it probably would have eased him to know that when they were gonna scope his trach, what oh that gosh. would be like and what to expect or whether the doctor maybe had something to distract him even or something else that... Or maybe on one of his scans, yeah, maybe one of his scans that they could just revisit the image on the virtual reality model instead of putting him back through an MRI or a CT scan for a second or third time. uh, I I almost lost it when you said MRI earlier because we had a couple after his initial diagnosis and even going in there to put him under because they had to switch off the ventilator and all of these things because it can't go in there with him they have to use the one that's in the room that's specially designed for it and all of these things and to be moved out of his chair and just I just I applaud what you're doing and the application and the runway that you all have to go apply this brilliant technology well I applaud you as a caregiver and as a parent for walking through it because 
I can say that while I may have been in the hospital bed, it was the surrounding bodies around me that really kept me going. And I'm sure your son felt the same way. So our third question, healthcare, and especially the very technological space that you're in, um, is a very complex place to keep up with. So to say the least, <laughs> yeah, it changes daily, if not hourly, sometimes, yes. right? And you're right. trying to stay abreast of all these things. Where do you find your resources? How do you keep up with it all? Or maybe a favorite read that's a personal escape for you that's had an impact on you? So I will say I'm an avid conference attendee. I find that it is a, a unique space where you have a plethora of brilliant minds all under the same roof looking at things from all different angles. And I've learned so much. I recently attended um, virtual medicine conference at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles and then the Patient Experience Summit at Cleveland Clinic and now here at Boston um, Health Expo. And you just, you formulate relationships with people. You get to see their ideas, their visions, their dreams for the future and see how you can combine your strategies to work. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. staff and clinicians about burnout or thank you, you know, to chirpy bird health it consulting or time off you can find out trained. more about them at it's www. www.chirpybird.inc so that i can take what i've learned there and proliferate it and then daniel if people want to find you online or work with you or engage with vrar through your company how would they get in touch what would be the best way? I would welcome them to reach out. And our website, you can visit it. It's www.empower360foundation.org. Um, my bio and contact information is listed on the website. And I look forward to hearing from you. Well, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure.